Hi, friends, and welcome to another episode of the End of Work podcast. My name is Johanna Mellis, and it's been a minute. It's been a little while since we've recorded an episode, I think since uh, March when we interviewed Joel Anderson. Um, but what we have for you today is a really special episode, not special in that it is totally different from what we've done before, but I would say really special for me because um, this is a subject that I have been ranting and raving and critiquing and arguing about uh, on Twitter for some time. Um, so today I'm interviewing Frankie De La Creta, a really fantastic, definitely one of my top uh, three sports journalists um, that I always kind of look out for their insights and their pieces and kind of their takes on things because they just hold such an incredible amount of nuance um, that I that I really appreciate and appreciate and that I learned so much from. So I'm going to be talking to them about their piece for the nation about women swimming and why it is so transphobic, which if you're a regular listener, you know this is something that, or, or that you follow me on Twitter because I, I go through phases where I tweet about it ad, ad nauseum. Um, and that piece of Frankie's, which we will absolutely be linking in the show notes for you all, um, really just captures so much nuance. Again, like I said, very typical of their work, um, but really just captures all angles and does so in a way that I think that I hope uh, really is like appropriate reading and, and this episode, you know, uh, accompaniment in terms of listening to just laying out all of the stakes, laying out how um, the sport of women swimming, how it's a white supremacist roots, how it's sexism, misogyny and sexual abuse history and the, um, the um the the factor of the east german women's uh the east german state perpetrated doping program in the uh, the 60s onwards how all of these things have essentially coalesced and been used by people sadly been used by a lot of uh, cishet white women, such as myself, to spew transphobia and to try to exclude trans women as much as possible, especially following Leah Thomas's um, career. And just to such detrimental effects, really cannot say enough uh, throughout uh, this episode that competing and participating in sports are is a human right. And so when it comes to these arguments about trying to exclude trans women in particular from sports in order to s- supposedly uphold cisgender women's kind of fairness and allow a cisgender women like kind of the fair ability to compete and, and compete objectively, supposedly, this is all a dog whistle. I mean, it's just because in reality, the, how do I say what we need to be holding first and foremost is like the priority is human rights and people's ability to live and to breathe and to compete and to to actually win, to have the the opportunity to win and not um, one group over all others. And that if we uphold trans women's rights to compete, that this is really a, a benefit to everybody um, and that really we all need to be standing in lockstep with and solidarity with uh, trans people, non-binary people, um, especially... Uh, at all times, but especially at a time when um, the Republican Party um, really has been platforming genocidal policies against trans people um, so much. So I hope that you um, learn a lot from this episode. I don't want to say enjoy. I mean, it is really such an intellectually um, rigorous conversation, such a nuanced conversation. And I really hope that you learn as much, if not more, than I did. I know I'm going to listen to it um, when it comes out because there's just so much that even I, I, I was not able to grasp. And so I hope that you enjoyed the episode. Um, if you if not already, pre- please rate, review, um, like, share our episodes. Um, 
with algorithms being what they are, any kind of sharing at any platform is really hugely appreciated. If you feel like you have the space to do so, we would love for people to contribute to our Patreon because all of this work is unpaid labor um, that we are only able to do uh, thanks to the fact that we all have full-time jobs, which as we know, academia is being is, is burning down um, both due to neoliberal, neoliberalism and capitalism as well as fascism, which work hand-in-hand in hand with one another. Um, so anyway, so we really appreciate any kind of support that you're able to give, but even just sharing and listening and telling us that you like the episodes, telling us what you listen to them um, really would would be wonderful. So um, I hope that you learn a lot and we will talk to you online and yeah, enjoy the show. Frankie Delacreta is one of my favorite freelance sports journalists and whose work I will recommend to literally anyone who will listen ad nauseum. Their analyses look at the intersection of sports, gender, culture, queerness, race, and so much more beyond sport. It's really exciting to see them um, kind of um, do, do more and more work in other realms. They are repeat guests, as some listeners might know, as we had Frankie on for episode number 83 to discuss their career in sports journalism at large, as well as a really great piece of theirs critiquing uh, the broadcasters of the WNBA who mispronounce, who have mispronounced black, brown, and inter- international players names. Their work has appeared in numerous really incredible outlets, um, including the New York Times, Sports Illustrated, Vogue, Washington Post, Bitch, Teen Vogue, and so much more. And if you haven't already, you really need to check out their fabulous co-authored book released in 2021 titled Hail Mary, The Rise and Fall of the National Women's Football League. Frankie, thank you so much for making time to talk with me today and welcome back to the end of sport. Thanks for having me. So today we're going to be discussing uh, a piece that you came out with on on May 12th with The Nation that really um, hits close to me that's called titled How Women's Women's Swimming Got So Transphobic. And I really want to note, I think this is the tagline uh, to really get across to listeners the importance of the piece and how bad things really are in the sport. Um, And it reads, quote, almost no other sport is as hostile to trans athletes. And that's because its culture created the perfect conditions for transphobia to take root. And as I was reading it, I just was like, what a line, what a line. Um, and I, I really want to say to you, Frankie, like, I'm so thankful for you writing this piece as a you know former female swimmer. It's been really disgusting to see the transphobia just like increase and increase. And um, yeah, so I just, yeah, I really appreciate the work that you all, that you, that you did to put into this. And I was wondering if um, you can maybe start um, to explain to listeners some of your background into the motivation for writing the piece and starting to work on it. Uh, why did you want to write it and how did you start work on it? Sure. I mean, I think what I wanted to do with this piece is use swimming almost as a case study for how the culture of a sport can lead to the kind of transphobic policies and pushback that we've seen in swimming I will say it's not unique to swimming right we're seeing this like overall hostility towards trans athletes across the board but I think each sport does have slight differences and it has its own culture and it's going to look different in different sports there are some sports that are more concerned with it less concerned with it incredibly concerned with it and so my hope was to use swimming kind of as a lens into how um 
you know, an anti-trans uh, kind of, I don't know, <laughs> culture and, and firestorm gets started. And I think I've had my eye on swimming for a while because some of the loudest voices against trans women being able to compete in women's sports have been coming out of the swimming community uh, kind of since this anti-trans political culture has really ramped up. And so swimming was on my radar for that reason. And then I think because Leah Thomas came in um, and had the success that she had on the World Aquatics policy um, that came as a result of Leah Thomas's success kind of happened like very quickly. Mm-hmm. And so I felt like there was definitely something happening in swimming that warranted a closer look. Absolutely. And I'm glad that you talked about it in terms of like a case study. And I'm hoping towards the back end, um, we could kind of contextualize swimming a bit, because as you said, there's like a whole range. Um, some are doing not so, not so terribly. And then some are just really off the rails. And I think, um, especially since swimming is, you know, doesn't get as much attention as I'm going to you know, ask you about in a bit. I think contextualizing it would be really helpful. Um, and, and so speaking of that, you know, swimming is, is really, really doesn't get much attention. And um, I'd venture to say that the two swimmers that Americans right now may be the most familiar with name wise are Michael Phelps, for better or for worse, and now Leah Thomas. Um, some people might be familiar with like Ryan Lochte or Katie Ledecky, um, but like Whenever people find out I'm a swimmer, they ask me about Leah Thomas, which is fine, and I'm happy to talk about her um, and kind of talk about the the anti-trans controversy around her. But but again, that is like the name a lot of people now know when they think of swimming. And so kind of with this background in mind that like it's a sport that doesn't get as much attention, um, how did you approach doing the research, writing, and pitching this piece? I wanted to talk to people who were in the swimming community and you were one of the first people I talked to um, when I had the idea for the piece to say, I think there's something here. Do you think there's something here? And as someone who is not in swimming, I'm from the outside noticing, right, these uniquely or maybe not like specifically uniquely, but like very prominent anti-trans attitudes in a way that we're not seeing with all sports. Do you think there's something going on here? What do you think is going on here? And you were really helpful um, in contextualizing some of that for me and giving me the jumping off points to research further. Um, I will say there was a point while I was doing this piece and one of my biggest rules as someone who reports on trans issues is I'm always like, you have to center trans voices. You have to talk mm-hmm. to trans people. Mm-hmm. And there was a point I stepped back and looked at all the sources I had and none of them were trans. And I was like, mm-hmm. oh no, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I need to do something about this. Um, and so I really did kind of take a step back and be like, whose voices are missing here? Mm-hmm. Um, because yeah, I realized I had like almost fully reported a piece on transphobia in women's swimming and hadn't talked to any trans people. And I was like, that's a mistake. Mm-hmm. <laughs> 
Yeah, no, I mean, I remember just kind of like dumping a lot of information in your, in your DMs, but it, yeah, no, I, I totally obviously agree. And, and I, I mean, the piece is really, I think, wonderful because I think you really highlight like people that are coming at it from different angles, right? You have scholars, you have um, former swimmers, you have kind of activist athletes and, and, and policymakers and, and right. So I think that makes it like such a, such a well-rounded piece. And um, yeah. And I think just, I think also you bring such like an outside perspective, but like you're obviously someone like, you know, sports so well. So like you're not someone that doesn't have any bearing on or any understanding of the sports world. You have you bring so much kind of multifaceted expertise. Um, and so like, let's get into the article itself. And there's a really, really, I think, excellent salient paragraph that I'm going to read aloud because I think it really encapsulates like your argument and kind of also hints at sort of the, the colonialist aspect of some of this as well. And it reads, quote, the World Aquatics Policy, uh, which you mentioned earlier, was the culmination of a long simmering anti-trans sentiment in the sport of women swimming, particularly in Western countries, including the U.S., the U.K. and Australia. While most sporting bodies have taken a hard turn to the right in recent years when it comes to allowing transgender athletes and transgender women in particular to compete, women swimming is in some ways uniquely anti-trans. It's a sport whose culture created the perfect conditions for trans exclusionary beliefs to take over through a combination of its overwhelming whiteness, history of rampant sexual abuse, and a 40-year-old doping scandal that still haunts it. And I, I, I wouldn't end quote. And I wouldn't be surprised if some swimmers who, sorry, some listeners who are not familiar with the sport or familiar with um, your work, they might be surprised about how white supremacy intersects with ideas of gender in the sport's transphobia. And so I was wondering if you could unpack this connection between racism, gender, and transphobia for us. Yeah, and this was a really important point. You know, you brought it up to me when I first approached you and multiple sources of mine were like, if you don't start here, you're not getting the full picture. Um, And it really was hammered home by almost everybody I spoke to. And a lot of people, I think, really fail to realize, because especially in in this case, when the face of the anti-trans backlash is is a white woman, is Leah Thomas, Um, I think it can be confusing to think about the roots of these transphobic beliefs coming from, you know, white supremacy and like um, those attitudes. And most, if not all, transphobia stems from white supremacy. And that is because, you know, any sort of femininity or gender presentation for women that goes against these like white western ideals of femininity is is a, th- a threat uh seen as you know threatening to the status quo and and you know white norms western norms and so this is going to affect trans women and it's going to affect black and brown women um and we see the way that that happened with leah thomas and the way that her body was policed um and the way that her body was written about as this thing to be feared for any perceived masculine traits Absolutely. And I, and I think too, um, which your piece talks about, right. That the women, not only is like Leah, Leah Thomas white, but the women, the, the, the white swimmers leading the anti-trans charge are all white women. And 
um, Nancy Hogshead May Carr repeatedly has pointed to the fact that like swimming supposedly doesn't have a race issue, uh, you know, compared to like track and field. And so therefore this is not an issue of race, which obviously like totally ignore and is inaccurate and totally ignores the whiteness of the sport and the, the deeply rooted white supremacy. A lot of scholars have done really great research on. Um, so yeah, I just think that the whiteness is really a big issue. Yeah. And I think, you know, on top of just the, that the, the idea of transphobia is an extension of white supremacy. On top of that, you have the sport of swimming. And if you look at the roots of this sport, its roots, particularly in Western and American culture are incredibly white. It was seen as one of the, you know, first appropriate sports for um, women, white women to participate in because it was seen as like feminine. Um, it was seen as a, you know, quote, clean sport. Mm -hmm. And we also know the history of swimming pools in this country, which mm -hmm. have been sites of racialized violence. Black Americans and other people of color have been forcibly kept out of swimming pools. And so as a result, the sport has just been overwhelmingly white on top of being a sport that has embodied kind of these these white and traditional sort of American ideals over time. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And just just for listeners who uh, want to learn more about this, I mean, there's a lot of really great work on it. Uh, we did a couple episodes, I think, in maybe summer 2020 or summer 2021. I can't remember with uh, Kevin Dawson on his book, um, Undercurrents of Power, which is really just one of the best books I've ever read on the subject. And with Matt Hodler, who, Frank, I know you, you talked to for the piece um, a fair bit. And um, there's a, a, another great book on uh, pools and segregation by Jeff Wiltza, where he talks about how the the pool, pools in the U.S. became segregated by race once they became like integrated by gender. That basically once like men and women were allowed to go to pools at, at the same time and be there simultaneously, there was this fear that like black and brown men were going to prey upon white women's bodies. And so therefore that's why they felt the need to like racially segregate the pools, right? So I, I just want to plug that. And I know, you know, your piece didn't have room to talk about it, I'm sure. But like, I think that really shows how kind of intertwined these things are. Absolutely. There was so much further I could have dug into kind of every idea that I bring up in this piece. <laughs> and people should definitely go read some of this stuff because the histories are a lot more complicated and, and nuanced and go really, really deep in ways that, you know, my piece just scratches the surface of. Definitely, definitely. But you tie it together so well. Like that is the thing is like you really tie together like all of these themes. I'm, I'm so impressed with people that are able to like concisely and neatly tie things together. So, you know, I even even though you didn't get to go into everything you wanted to, you do it. You do it so well there. Um, and so I wanted to pivot to this um, question and this question, this this claim of like dope, the, this conflation of doping and cheating and Leah Thomas being a cheater. Because um, a lot of people, including Michael Phelps, who have a particular axe to grind against him for many reasons, um, but lots of other people uh, called Leah Thomas a cheater and others, um, including Nancy Hogshead-Makar, Donna DeVarona, I believe, um, have 
conflated her existing and wanting to succeed in the sport to the same thing as the East German uh, state uh, perpetrated doping program from the Cold War. Um, now, I have like a really long rant. I want to go on it from a historian's perspective, but I wanted to hear from you first. Like, what what do you think about um, these people making this argument to make the, to, to make an anti-trans claim? Um, what are they trying to do here? How are they making it? And sort of what do you think about it? Ugh, there's so much here to me <laughs> that is just misguided. Um, and I think before we even get into why Leah Thomas swimming is not the same as a state-sponsored doping scandal, um, I also just want to say, like, the longer, you know, I've talked about this on Twitter recently because of the comments to this particular mm. article, the longer I report on trans participation, trans inclusion, trans people playing sports, like the less willing I am to debate the science of advantage Mm -hmm. or the science Mm -hmm. of testosterone. Um, You know, there is no indication that trans women have any inherent advantage, advantage over cis women when it comes Mm -hmm. to sports. But to me, like it's not even a relevant question because at the heart of what we're talking about is human rights and Mm -hmm. someone's ability to participate and all elite athletes have an advantage over their competitors. And it is why they are elite athletes. So Mm -hmm. um, Michael Phelps, as we're talking about has plenty of things about his body that make him uniquely suited to be a successful swimmer. Um, And the reason he has dominated the sport in the way that he did is because of the, like, yes, hard work, Mm -hmm. but also Mm -hmm. (laughs) the way his body is built is built to be in a pool, essentially. Mm -hmm. And so I think when we talk about sports, like, uh, elite athletes just have advantages over, you know, their competitors, and it's what makes them elite. Um, And so I think generally these are kind of, like, red herrings anyway. Mm -hmm. But... It was fascinating to me to read some of the commentary about the East German swimmers and the way that the women who had competed against them felt even like 40 years later, because like, you know, so for, for people, and you will probably say more about this and do a much better job explaining this, but for people who don't know, right, there was this state sponsored doping effort in which you know, athletes and um, particularly, but not solely women were given uh, synthetic testosterone, sometimes without their knowledge. Mm-hmm. And they, those women, you know, really dominated, particularly at the 1976 Olympics um, in women's swimming for the purposes of this story. And the women who competed during the time period that this doping was ongoing, um, we'll talk about the, the East German women in this, like these very like scare, scare terms, right. They talk about their mustaches. They talk about, um, their deep voices in the locker room and how terrifying it was and all of this stuff. And like, I think first of all, we're talking about doping in to gain advantage in a sport, which is a very different thing than gender affirming therapy, mm-hmm. gender forming hormone therapy. Leah Thomas is actually suppressing her testosterone levels rather than mm-hmm. increasing them. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of 
if not most, um, sporting bodies have policies that do measure trans women's testosterone levels. Uh, most <laughs> trans women actually have these testosterone levels that are lower than cis women, you know, particularly those who are competing in sport. Um, and so it's all like really a red herring. But so to me, though, 40 years later, like you'd think there would be some sort of perspective about the fact that like these like East German swimmers were actually victims of mm-hmm. something mm-hmm. pretty terrible done to their bodies without their consent. Um, it would be these as it's. Like they were essentially forced on to hormone therapy for the wrong gender. <laughs> like some of the changes they're talking about being done to their bodies are, are not reversible and they were done without their consent. Um, and so it's wild to me that like 40 years later, the perspective that some of these women, particularly women like, you know, Nancy Hogshead Macker, who is, we'll talk more about obviously, and is one of the loudest anti-trans voices but who, before she decided to dedicate all of her time to targeting trans women and girls, um, dedicated her time to championing, championing, you know, women. She founded an organization called Champion Women, which was, you know, designed to root out things like sexual abuse in the sport, but also just like advocate. She's a Title IX lawyer. So Supposedly, I say supposedly because her work, I think, is not quite in line with how I perceive Title IX to function. But the fact that somebody who claims to care about women and their autonomy and agency and like um, their bodies (laughs) to come away being like, oh, yeah, the real victims are those of us that lost out on medals. That sucks. I'm really, really sorry that they trained their whole lives to compete and and that was the circumstances under which they had to do it. That is really heartbreaking to have missed out on, you know, a fair shot at medals. But I think with perspective, we can see that, like, the victims here, too, really are those swimmers. Like, those are not the enemies here. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think as someone who is not super familiar with the sport and, like, well, hadn't looked into that much before writing this piece, I came away just being like, I feel like I feel like the conversation here has gotten really far away from what actually happened during that time. And I think it has been a convenient kind of scapegoat for a lot of these women to bring up um, now um, because they believe it proves their point. Absolutely. No, you're totally you're totally on it. And it's. um yeah, just the wild inaccuracies and, and like conflation of of histories of like trauma and victimization. And I mean, yeah, like I have like a whole kind of rant. I say a rant, but really like a, a thing that I wrote this morning. And, and I should say Matt Hodler is is doing research on some of this stuff. And I really cannot wait. Like I heard him present on it last year and I really can't wait for it to, for him to write about it. Um, but like from a historical perspective, like, as you said, this is very inaccurate. It's historical and it literally is harmful to everybody, right? To everybody, because it's a disservice to all of these various different experiences. And I think as you noted, or as you at least imply, like it, it really, like these people, they're weaponizing these victims and their, the East German women, the East German women, they're victims of state abuse. And by weaponizing it, it further like harms and, and downplays their experiences and it does it for the purpose of perpetuating this increasingly mainstream right 
create like fascist ideas about gender exclusion to, to target trans people, which also, as you mentioned, I, I believe in our last episode with you also ends up harming cis people as well. Although like, I'm not saying, you know, like cry for cis people right now. And this real, this is like really anti-communist, anti-socialist, it's fascist. And it reinforces this GOP genocidal push that that's really just continues to get ramp, ramped up, which is scary. And I, I think like there's a world and I hear this even if from some his, historians who just are not understanding quite the nuance, but I think there's a way to hold nuance here where we do not instrumentalize and weaponize these female victims of the GDR's doping program where we can like hold space for them and condemn and like focus on the fact that, as you said, like what they went through was state perpetrated medicalized sporting abuse. And that is so different from Leah Thomas. And we can do that while also not acknowledge that trans women are absolutely not cheating, that they're enduring their own like unique but not disconnected experiences of abuse from state and non-state actors alike, kind of depending on how you look at it. Um, and that, that the conflating it with Michael Phelps being such a voice that he, and Michael Phelps, who heads up a mental health organization, which I have a lot of thoughts about, you know, and then kind of, you know, perpetuating this argument. And then, you know, Hogshead May Carr for Women's Sports Policy Group conflating and, you know, this inaccuracy um, which reinforces Western neoliberal triumphalism of the Cold War also. Um, yeah, it's, it's just, it's so bad and it's, it's, it's complex, but, um, and you're right. It just, the more that you dive into it, just people are just like repeating things that are just patently not true. Um, so yes, yeah, so I was, I was really glad that you talked to that, um, in your piece. Yeah. And it was, it was, uh, interesting because I asked, you know, most of my sources about this and, that one was a controversial inclusion, uh, depending on, on who you talked to, because some people felt that it really did have an impact for swimmers of a particular generation um, who, you know, are now in either coaching roles or advocacy or organizational roles like we see with Nancy Hogshead-Macker and Donna DiVerona, who is also in the same uh, women's sports uh, policy working group. Um, who are influential in the sport and other people who had grown up in and around women swimming were like, eh, I kind of never heard about this until Leah, which, you know, I think says a lot too, that, um, a, it says a lot about the convenience perceived convenience of this argument. For sure. And, you know, and I, I'm, I, yeah, you, again, your, your piece just holds like so much nuance because I, I think that's really interesting. And I've said this in other places, but like I grew up swimming in the 90s and the 90s was when really like the evidence was coming out about this because the two Germanys were unifying, right? The Cold War had ended, capitalism had won, West Germany had won. And so there was like a push to put a lot of these people on trial. And there's this book, Faust's Gold, which I kind of recommend to people, but it's like very it's very um, slanted. Like there's some really good information in there, but there's like a real political agenda um, and in terms of writing it. So like, it is not the end all be all um, to, uh, on the subject, but, but does lay out a lot of the evidence. And so like, I kind of heard about it in whispers on the pool deck, but like the way it was talked about was like, 
like very like uh, points to kind of the the, the the concerns about gender, which was like, don't look too masculine. Like, don't do too many push-ups. Like, don't do too many burpees when burpees were becoming a thing. And like, I had broad shoulders and like, oh, that's really bad because you might look like a man. And like, it, it really is kind of wrapped up in so much of the sexism and the misogyny of the sport, which obviously relates to transphobia. Um, and so for me, it was like, the way I heard it was like, this is a warning. And also like, you should be thankful because like your government didn't do this, but it did Title IX, which gave you the opportunities and obviously, you know, that you have that you're able to like enjoy supposedly and in, in, in a division one uh, college swimming, which as you've noted in many, many pieces that like Title IX is fundamentally flawed, right? And it's just, there's so many kind of straw man arguments once you kind of pull it, once you kind of start pulling out the threads. Um, so yeah, I'm, I was glad you noticed the kind of differing opinions that people had and people's kind of understanding about it uh, across generations. Yeah, no, it's there's there was so much nuance, honestly, to kind of thread through in 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 this piece. Yeah, and and I think this is a, a good kind of place to kind of turn to like the sexual abuse scandals within U.S. swimming and kind of the the breakdown of USA swimming in terms of the racial, uh, the gender. I think is the breakdown you focus on. Um, and so, what did you find about what these abuse scandals like? What do they have to do with the sport and the sports, like particularly like anti-trans approach? I will say this was the piece I was most nervous about tackling in the story mm -hmm. because it's so sticky because mm -hmm. you don't want to ever invalidate somebody's trauma. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to be careful to acknowledge that a lot of these women who are coming out against trans participation have like very valid traumas, very valid sexual traumas and you know, experiences that they went through that I wanted to affirm. But I wanted to be very, very clear that those experiences have nothing to do with trans women. And so mm -hmm. that was a needle that I wanted to thread really well because mm -hmm. I did not want anyone to come away from this piece thinking that I had in any way implied that, you know, trans women could be seen as a threat in the same way um, that the cis men who had perpetrated this, this harm are. And so, uh, you know, swimming, like so many other sports and women's sports in particular, has a history of sexual abuse. And that history has been you know addressed in certain ways in that it has been brought into the public eye when a lot of swimmers really came forward and talked about their experiences we've already mentioned nancy hogshead macker as as one of those swimmers and that was you know her real um cause before she took this hard turn to the right was really about rooting out sexual abuse from the sport of swimming and other women's sports, right? We've seen gymnastics have quite a big reckoning around this mm -hmm. as well. And, you know, there's a lot of ways that that problem still exists and has not been adequately dealt with. However, what has happened is a lot of these cis women who have been victimized by men have bought into some of the more insidious anti-trans talking points, which is, 
the idea that trans women are just, quote, biological men, right? It, and as a result of that, they are a threat, not just athletically, mm-hmm. but um, in, like, the locker rooms as well. Mm-hmm. And there's this idea that because of the fact that trans women are assigned a certain gender at birth that they, you know, are a danger, are going to prey on or harm cis women. And it's just, it, this one to me is the mo one of the most upsetting. It's so maddening because not only is it transphobic and like rooted in, in these really, um, you know, horrible ideas that, that, invalidate trans women's gender and like the fact that they're women but it also just doesn't take into account that trans women are actually some of the most vulnerable to harassment and abuse mm-hmm. um they're you know kind of the most marginalized by gender and all statistics bear out that trans women are so much more likely to be victims of assault or abuse or harassment mm-hmm. um that rather than perpetrators of it. And I think that this really is one of the most like poisonous um, things that, you know, trans exclusionary feminism has put forward. And I think, you know, it really does capitalize on real harm that so many cis women have experienced. And rather than say, Actually, cis women and trans women are united by their struggle against this or united by the fact that they are often victimized in this way. It's pitting these two marginalized groups against each other and making trans women responsible for the harm perpetrated by cis men. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah, um, you said it so well. Yeah, it's it's really, really disgusting. Really, this like creation of like a competitive, like a hierarchy of suffering, competitive suffering, uh, which I teach about in the classroom, but like in different in different kind of cases. But this idea, as you said, the kind of br- trying to destroy or or prevent any kind of solidarity between groups that yeah fa- face a lot of harm and done by cisgender, largely heterosexual white women who occupy many more positions of power and privilege than, than trans women do. Um, and yeah, I mean, and I know even like for me, I mean, I'm, I'm glad that you kind of noted the like challenges of how to, again, sort of thread this needle. And I know even for me for a while, like I, I didn't know how to like talk about this because like, like you, I didn't want to, you know, negate or kind of seem, seem to like sort of downplay experience of sexual abuse and harassment or whatever. But I mean, she's just, these people, they're totally weaponizing it. Right. Which just does such a disservice again to everybody. And, um, there's a scholar, a sports scholar named Aurelie Pankoviak. And I know at one point, like she, uh, was a basketball player in the French system and was sexually abused by her coach, I think. And she's just a cisgender woman. And at one point she said like to, I don't, I don't remember if it was Nancy Hogs, I make car or somebody else, but she tweeted out like, you know, please basically stop using my experiences for your transphobia. And she just got dogpiled. 
and had to like, she's like, this is, this is really traumatic. And, and, and even within, you know, there's a lot of movement within Canadian sport to kind of fight um, the system and get the government to do a national inquiry um, to look into instances of abuse and sexual abuse. And there are people have reached out to me and been like, people are using our tweets to like, you know, push transphobia. And I'm like, if you feel comfortable, like, please push back. You know, like you said, there's a way to have solidarity um, and there's a way to kind of resist this and, and, and recognize all the nuances and that there are specific conditions and experiences for these different groups. And as you noted, there's sadly overlap, right? It doesn't, you know, trans women experience like really horrific sexual abuse and, um, yeah, it just is like really insidious. And with Nancy Hugs Head Make Car, it's just like, like, what are you doing with your life's work? I, you know, and I think like many of us really looked up to her and like saw her as a real um, figurehead. Um, and then to see her just to turn to the right and go to that, you know, icons conference that Carly Chardonnay Webb has, has documented really well for us. Um, it's just, it's really gross and disgusting. Yeah, it it is. And her pivot, it seems to be getting like more and more um, intense as she goes. Like the fact mm-hmm. that she gets criticized for being as transphobic as she is, is making her almost like more transphobic. Like she's mm-hmm. like doubling mm-hmm. down in ways yep. that I find like incredibly appalling. Um, she's yep. someone I had interviewed in the past about her mm-hmm. advocacy work. And oh. so I knew her name when it started coming up in these circles. And I think I had hope that maybe she would come to see why her views um, were harmful or, you know, not rooted in in much reality and instead like the complete opposite has happened. And it really has been disappointing. Yeah. Yeah. And I know like her, I mean, like most people who hold anti-trans views and like, you know, use their platform to spew this, 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 this shittiness, like her follower account, like just keeps getting bigger. Um, right. Because this is the thing that like people that sells like this is, and, and, and so I think there is a question. I don't think anyone has an answer to it. It's like how much of this is like her beliefs versus like her opportunistic ideals. But at the end of the day, like how much does that even really matter? Right. When like the harm that's being done is, is what's key. Well, I think what's right. And I think that what's most upsetting about this is because her and her small group of, um, fellow, you know, anti-trans, you know, actors are so loud and so vocal and they have the, level of respect and recognition in the sporting community simply because they've, you know, had success, particularly in an individual sport, right? They have competed on an international level at Olympic Games for the United States. It gives them an air of um, people trust what they say, authority. That's the word I wanted. It gives them an air of authority that isn't always deserved or earned, right? Somebody who competed at a really high level of swimming doesn't necessarily mean that they are qualified to speak out on the nuances of these things. You add the fact that, you know, Nancy Hogshead Macker in particular is a Title IX lawyer and it gives her even more credibility in these circles. I think it's just their voices have been so loud and they've had such an impact on policy and the mainstream conversation and the mainstream media's reporting. And it's shocking and so disheartening to me how such a small group of people 
can have such a large negative impact on like an entire culture. And I think that has been the most jarring. And I think it's what people really don't understand is how few people really are involved. It's the same like five people over and over and over again who are creating this narrative that we are seeing spread through uh, policy and, you know, mainstream media. Absolutely. And that's, that brings us to my next question, which is this like meeting that her group hosted in January 2022 with, the uh, as you as you talked about, U.S. swimming's kind of heavy hitters. Um, so like, what do we know about this meeting for anyone who might be familiar? Kind of what was it about um, people involved, that sort of thing? Um, there is quite a lot of detail for people that want to read more about this meeting in, um, Robert Sanchez wrote a piece for Sports Illustrated profiling Leah Thomas, and he writes quite a bit about this meeting. But what we know is there was some 250 people in attendance, and it was, you know, sort of a state of the union year of <coughs> women's swimming and the perceived problem of trans women and what to do about that. Um, and you know, also other sports, but because um, of Leah Thomas, because so many of the supporters and members and founders of the Women's Sport Policy Working Group come from the swimming community, I think swimming has always kind of largely been a focus of this particular group. Um, And you have, like, people who you know, our Team USA or former Team USA swimmers, you have parents of swimmers, you have, you know, international swimmers and uh, current and former NCAA swimmers and kind of a who's who in some ways of, you know, the, the swimming world. And it's very telling to me that journalists were not allowed to quote anybody by name or identify anybody who attended this meeting. And I assume as, um, you know, Helen Lunsky, who I interviewed for this piece as well, and who co-edited the book Justice for Trans Athletes, she says in, in her book, like they theorize that the reason that people who wouldn't want to be identified here is they fear backlash um, or... <laughs> I use the word discrimination uh, somewhat oh, no. ironically <laughs> due to their transphobic <laughs> beliefs, you know? Um, and it is, which tells me that they know that what they are doing is like wrong. <laughs> tells me that they know that being involved in this is probably going to be seen as being very much on the wrong side of history. And so they're doing it anyway. It, you know, this is a very extreme example, but it almost reminds me of, like, the fact that, like, the KKK wears hoods, right? Because if they were actually identified, right? You know, it's it's um, asking for anonymity um, so that you can spew your uh, bigoted beliefs. Um, but it was, like, what do we do about this, right? What can we do about this? And it drummed up this problem um, that you know, to me doesn't exist, but using all of the same talking points. And I want to say that I think that so many people in the sports world and in like, I'll talk about American culture because that's, that's what I'm familiar with. American culture at large. And I guess, you know, I'll say Western too, because the UK is like very, very um, steeped in this transphobic rhetoric as well. 
that I think what makes people so susceptible to being swayed by this kind of reasoning is the way the media has given a platform to anti-trans beliefs and really given a lot of room um, to legitimize those beliefs. And so it sounds really reasonable because we've been conditioned to believe that it is. And so I think that a lot of people who maybe have been reading too much of the New York Times can very easily be convinced that trans women are the enemy that need to be like rooted out of women's sport. And so I say that because you have all of these people on a call like this and I guess maybe I'm just hopeful, but there's a part of me that's like, if you could present people with the actual facts instead of this like bigoted (laughs) rhetoric that maybe there are a not insignificant number of people on that call who might actually see, see the truth, you know? Um, But what we have seen come out of meetings like that is there is this like machine that is working behind the scenes to do things like send a letter to, you know, the NCAA, you know, demanding Leah Thomas um, not be allowed to compete or uh, for a policy um, that, you know, FINA, you refer to them as World Aquatics in my story, um, can put into place very, very quickly, right, in response. Or you can get hundreds of people to sign some letter to some body or whatever. And so it feels like there is this mechanism working kind of quietly behind the scenes, ready to make it seem like the anti-trans voices are much larger um, than they actually are. Yeah, no, I, and I think you're right. That's this, this creation of sort of this machine and kind of, and also, I mean, you know, in the piece that uh, Schuller Bailar, you know, helped spearhead this like letter, which a lot, a lot of people signed, like myself included. And I was like thrilled to see how many swimmers uh, signed in support of, you know, Leah Thomas and to denounce um, the anti-trans position. It's just like, and the sad thing is that like swimmers are like not known for, verbalizing kind of political beliefs. I mean, obviously they're acting out their political beliefs every day by simply living and being and being humans because we all are political um, and then being involved in like this really white cisgender sport. Um, it's just like very few people are like willing to to speak up and, and speak up with like clarity. And, and again, that nuance to kind of dive into these issues because there's this fear of like, well, taking our opportunities and blah, 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 blah. But I, I with you, I hope that, you know, once people see that, like, there's so much room for solidarity, there's so much promise, you know, again, your point about that, like, the people who are sexually abused, like cisgender women are largely cishet men, and most of them are white, because the sport is white, right? So it it just like, there's so much room for for cisgender women to actually, like, realize there's a lot of solidarity and working together, there's a lot to gain for everybody to, like, really try to protect everyone's bodily autonomy. Um, And I think that meeting like anytime I think about it, it's just like really gross. And like you said, the fact that like people were not allowed to be identified or reported on by name just makes it it's hard to not think that there's kind of this large specter of people that are, you know, really behind the, the development of these policies and trying to really like um, eliminate uh, trans people from the sport. Um, yeah. Yeah. And I think that's an interesting question of like journalistic, like I wasn't at that meeting. Um, but anyone reporting on that meeting, it feels like you have a choice to make ethically as a journalist, which is 
you know, did I agree to these terms and who am I protecting by upholding them? Um, I think a lot about who has power and like who's being harmed. And like when I tell stories and I will say I once asked the Women's Sport Policy Working Group for comment for a story that I was writing and I sent them a few questions and they sent me back this response that was like, you can only use, you can only quote us. You can only use our response if you use our entire response. And it was like three paragraphs long. And they knew as well as I knew that I could not drop three paragraphs, whether it was, you know, regardless of what it said, I cannot drop a three paragraph long quote from a source in the middle of a story. That's just not how journalism works. Um, you know, you have to trust that as a journalist, I'm not going to quote you out of context, which I didn't, but I'm not going to give you three paragraphs to spew whatever, regardless of whether I agree with your stance or not, you know, and I had a choice to make with my editor because I'm like, well, in theory, they, they said I couldn't use this unless I use the whole thing. And we went ahead and used, you know, the part of it that was relevant regardless of despite what they said because a i had never agreed to those terms um and so it wasn't you know as a journalist usually um when you do off the record on the record on background whatever it is you that ha- that's an agreement entered into by both parties and i did not actually agree to that um but it's just not how journalism works and so i think a lot about you know the responsibility we have as journalists um, and the agreements that we enter into and which is not to say I would have identified people had I been at the meeting, but I think a lot about um, who we're protecting um, by, you know, n- not doing something like that and what our job is. Absolutely. That, that's, I'm so glad you that you shared that. That's so yeah, that's so interesting. This idea that like they can make demands on people when they they're a small group, but they hold a lot of like cultural political power, right? Because because of having built their their power on, you know, fighting sexual abuse, right? So the kind of yeah, the the use of that power to then like basically pull the ladder up behind them and 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 target and really like harass this like tiny group or at least like tiny now for like, you know, just wanting to exist and be successful like like everybody else. Um and it's and, and something that you mentioned the piece that I wanted to bring up again for listeners who may not be aware like you look at USA Swimming's staff page, which I haven't looked at in a while. I think the last time I looked was maybe summer 2021. And from what I remember like more white women held at least staff positions than white men. And like you talk in the piece about how it's on this co-optation, I don't know how you say that word, of of kind of DEI by like particularly white women, which we know from the history of Title IX that the people who benefit the most are people like me, cis, um, cishet white women. Um, and, and, you know, considering the history of sexual abuse, which they really have not appropriately addressed. Um, it's it's really like very curious or, or really kind of purposeful use of white women and white women kind of being willing to be used as, as tools for white supremacy and transphobia. Yeah, they always have been. White women have always been white mm-hmm. supremacy's like biggest weapon, right? And we, we yeah. see over and over again um, in studies that white women will often choose to protect their race over their gender. Um, that happens 
you know, often and throughout history. And in this case, um, there are studies that show that the, as you said, the people who have benefited the most from pressures for diversity are white women. And it's so often that you see that. And, you know, on the one hand, knowing that swimming is an overwhelmingly white sport, it's not surprising that, you know, the staff of, of USAS is going to be overwhelmingly white. And at the same time, it is continuing to perpetuate the existing culture. Um, and not, there's, you know, you can't have <laughs> change has to start from the top. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Definitely. Yeah. So one of the, I, I think I have like maybe two other questions, um, kind of depending on the directions we go, uh, with this, um, you mentioned in a few places, kind of like the barriers to getting the, the pitch for this piece accepted. And I was wondering if like, to the extent they feel comfortable talking about, um, what were some of these barriers? What what might have been a possible reason or two for why places might have been hesitant to publish it? Yeah, I mean, if you remember how long ago I had first contacted you about this story, <laughs> yeah. right? Yeah. Um, I think sometimes people are surprised because I will do a lot of initial outreach when I have an idea for a pitch. And often because of the nature of the stories that I, I write, they are hard to find homes for. Mm-hmm. And it's so frequent that I will like go back to somebody like six months later and be like, hi, remember me? Remember we talked about this thing? <laughs> Surprise. It's, <laughs> it's finally being written. I did not actually forget about this. I very mm-hmm. often, you know, don't follow through on story ideas that I have. Um, but it does often take a long time for my stories to find homes. Mm-hmm. This one in particular was really difficult to place because as we mentioned earlier, Swimming does not get a lot of mainstream attention. Mm. Leah Thomas competing in college swimming is the most women's swimming has probably ever been on TV, including at the Olympics, right? Yes, Yes, um, for sure. So it is not a sport that has a very high profile. And as a result, it's not um, considered to be of like mainstream interest. You add to that, that I'm trying to report specifically about transphobia and like this one trans woman who competed and um, it is going to be deemed niche. And that is what happened to me over and over and over again. Um, It was, this is a really interesting story, but who in our readership is actually going to care about this? Um, and that is very frustrating, you know, and then of course you've got, because Leah Thomas was in the news as much as she was, it weirdly limited, like you would think that this would have made my story from a different angle than we'd previously seen be relevant, but there was a lot of oversaturation, right? Like somewhere like Sports Illustrated probably isn't going to run another in-depth piece on swimming culture so soon after they had profiled Leah Thomas in, uh, you know, they a, a publication like that gives all of this space to a very well done profile of Leah Thomas. But that is kind of whether it's them or another sports publication, that's kind of like all of the space they're going to dedicate to women's swimming for like a very long time. Right. Because it's not one of the major sports that their readership is invested in reading about. 
and not just women swimming, but trans women swimming. Like <laughs> we're really narrowing down like who they see a story appealing to. And so even with women's publications, right? This was too like inside baseball in the sport itself for most women's publications to want to consider it because if you're going to write a sports piece for a women's publication, it has to be really accessible to kind of a mainstream audience. And I'm, again, taking a sport that's not very mainstream, taking an issue in the sport that's not very mainstream, and then getting, like, into the weeds on it. And so, you know, a women's publication is, like, general readership is not going to be able to follow or care about this. So it brings you back to a sports publication. And again, it's like, cool, women's swimming. We already wrote five pieces about Leah Thomas this year. We're not going to write another one. Or, sorry, it's just, it's too niche. And so um, I am really grateful uh, to Dave Zirin at The Nation, who was like too niche. We love too niche. Um, and, and forwarded my pitch along to the editor. I ended up working with his name is Jack Markins and he was wonderful by the way. Um, and they were like immediately. Yes. And so it's right about finding the right publication. And this is a publication, right. That cares about social justice and political issues and could see the benefit and could see this story for what it was, which as we said at the Top, I was hoping to use this one particular sport as a case study to examine how a sport ends up in the position that we're seeing so many sports. And I could write a piece like this about almost every single sport individually, and it's going to look a little bit different, even if the large themes are the same. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And I just wanted to say when, yeah, so we talked very, I don't even know when it was very early on. Um, and I dumped a lot of information on you in the in DMs. And then I remember, I think maybe you reach out to me and we're like, it got accepted, you know, a while later. And I was like, yes. And then I think Matt, I'm good friends with Matt. And he had said like, oh, I talked to Frankie on Zoom and I was like, yes. So I like, was like hearing little bits of pieces of how you were developing the story. And I was just like, fingers crossed, fingers crossed. Um, so yeah. So then, then when I I saw it on Twitter. I was like, oh my God, I was kind of just, it just so needed to be written and you did such a good job of it. And I know it like took such a long time. Um, and I'm, I'm hoping that like the way that you even um, answered that question kind of clues listeners in more and more as we really try to do on the show about like what sports journalism is like, sports media, how to navigate these things. I mean, obviously a um, lot, lot, of, lot of things to, to kind of think through. Um, and sort of, so you already started to get us talking about a little bit, um, sort of like, how does transphobia within one woman swimming, what does it look like compared to other sports? Cause I think like you said, it's a case study, like, you know, you could write a little bit differently in other sports or are there maybe some that are similar, some that are very different. I think that would be interesting. Yeah, I think as I mentioned earlier, we're seeing this hard turn to the right generally and policy is becoming more and more restrictive when it comes to particularly trans women's participation in sports. Swimming is one of the more extreme examples, and I believe, like, the fact that Leah Thomas existed and had the level of success that she had is the reason that swimming is as hostile to trans athletes as it is. The other um, sport 
that are kind of close when I think about really pushing these restrictive policies are track and field. Um, you know, World Athletics governs track and field, and they have for a long time had one of the most restrictive policies in sports. And to me, that also extends from the racism side um, differently than swimming does, right? Um, we talked about the ways that the transphobic beliefs are extensions of white supremacy and how that particularly ties to swimming earlier. We look at a sport like track and field that is not as white, right? And you have Nancy Hogshead McCarr say, like, this is proof that, like, it's not a race issue, but it's the same issue. It's just manifesting differently because when the transphobic beliefs manifest in a sport like track and field, which has a lot of black and brown athletes and black and brown women having success in that sport by forcing these white Western ideals of femininity onto those black and brown women. These are cis women we're talking about, not even trans women. We are not talking about trans women having success in track and field. We are talking about black and brown women who have naturally, uh, these specific women who might have naturally higher testosterone levels than the, you know, some of their white counterparts having these, you know, white Western ideals of femininity forced on them. And what that does is prevent them from competing. And so you have more room for these like white Western runners to have success in the sport. And so again, it's racism. But in this case, it's like trying to prevent the black and brown women from competing rather than the fact that like there just aren't a lot of black and brown women competing in swimming and this sport is like upholding these other it, they're upholding the same ideas of femininity but they're like manifesting differently just because the sports are are different in terms of like the makeup of who's competing right so you can see the how the ideas like play out differently um cycling is another interesting sport that has actually more trans women than a lot of the other sports that we've talked about um and and they are really struggling right now against um a restrictive policy and it's a sport that like had been relatively inclusive and just like really kind of pivoted um hard and then you have like and see this is where it gets complicated because you have the elite levels that what I'm talking about right now is like the international governing bodies and the way that they write policy for elite sports. But then you have, on the other hand, you have, like, professional sports. Like, in the U.S., that would be the WNBA or the National Women's Soccer League or the Premier Hockey Federation, right? And they are not... that It's different, and those pro leagues are writing different kinds of policies that are in some ways more inclusive, depending on the league. Um, they're all more inclusive than the governing, most of the governing bodies um, at the international level are writing. Um, and some of those are better, right? And But then you have, see, it's really sticky too, because then you get into an individual sport versus a team sport. And I think there's a lot more room on team sports for people to say, 
if there's a trans person on the field with us, they're one of many and they are not going to like completely tip the scales if they do have this perceived advantage that we think they do versus an individual sport, right? Um, or a sport that's going to come down to like time, like running and swimming are both individual sports that are like timed. And so any advantage that one is perceived to have could actually have a really big difference rather than if you're like one player on a soccer field alongside many. And so I know I just like went really in the weeds and and said a lot of stuff, but I, I think when you look sport by sport, it is complicated because each sport is different. And it's why the International Olympic Committee in their most recent recommendations for how governing international governing bodies should be writing policy, they recommend sport specific research on this issue because each sport is different and what it requires of a body is going to be different. Yeah. And I I remember when uh, the IOC came out with that policy, I don't, you would, you would know this better than me. I'm pretty sure you were at least one piece on it, kind of basically punting policies to the international federations or the IFs. And people were like, kind of celebratory because of, you know, like, oh, you know, saying like these IFs need to do research. And then you were like, well, this leaves a lot of gray area, right? And this kind of allows a lot of these international federations to kind of go, you know, go, go to the right. I remember you saying that very early on. Yes. So the IOC's new, like, recommendation, it's not a policy. It's like a framework. (laughs) It's a recommendation for the international federations is that they're each responsible for coming up with their own policy for their own sport. Um, what was great about that framework is it said things like, um, there should not be to, to move away from testosterone based policies. Um, it said things like, uh, sport is a human right. And, there are people that are being harmed by these testosterone-based policies. It said things like erring on the side of inclusion rather than exclusion. However, this framework has no teeth. There's no enforcement mechanism. And so they're still leaving it up to the international federations themselves. And so an example of this is before this new framework was put into place or announced, World Athletics, who governs track and field, had one of the most restrictive policies in sports. So the IOC comes out with this new framework being like, move away from testosterone-based body policing. And World Athletics puts out a statement and it's like, we have no plans to change our policy. And then several months later, actually tightened that policy. Um, And so... There's not the IOC, basically, there's nothing they can do about that. They can be like, these policies, there's no scientific basis for them and they're harming people, but we're not going to do anything about it if you choose to go with them anyway. And I think that's the most frustrating thing about that framework. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And and I wanted to thank you too for like, I guess, getting into the weeds, but you said earlier, I, I thought the, right, the kind of macro view, which is something that I certainly don't have. Like, I think that was really helpful, at least for my understanding. And I'm sure for, for, for other listeners, for listeners too. Um, and I, yeah, one thing I wanted to kind of uh, build on your point, right. This, the sports that are rooted in like time that are time-based, right. So much of this is, this is, um, 
these like Western, I would say, imperial beliefs about objectivity, right? Which dom and this idea of fairness, which like really dominates sport. I mean, from the 1800s onwards, when the British are like sitting, British, you know, upper middle class men are sitting around a table trying to create rules for the game to exclude working class people from making money and, you know, making, trying to keep sports like a gentleman's game or whatever, um, right? This kind of hyper focus on objectivity, which in any kind of field of work, it doesn't matter what you're doing, right? Objectivity doesn't actually really exist. Um, and, and within sports, this idea of fairness. And so these like time-based sports that are so focused on like shaving seconds off by any means possible, there's such a, a an obsession with like, well, this is how objective sport is really done because the clock doesn't lie. Um, and I think that, yeah, that's plays such a key role um, in addition to the, the, the kind of team sport dynamic that you mentioned earlier. Oh, yeah, absolutely. The idea of fairness has been so weaponized um, by anti-trans individuals that it, like, doesn't mean anything anymore in these conversations. But I think, you know, again, it's another red herring. Sports has never been fair. Like, it just isn't fair Um, for a variety of reasons, whether that's access whether that's ability, whether that's, you know, equipment and coaching, regardless, there's so many different things that go into uh, advantage or disadvantage or like fairness. And I always come back to the question of, you know, fair for whom, right? Because if we're going to talk about what fairness looks like for trans athletes and trans women, fairness just looks like having the right to compete alongside everybody else. And so I think we center the wrong people in the conversation about fairness. Absolutely. Well, Frankie, I've taken up so much of your time, um, but I wanted to ask us like there anything else that you wanted to mention that I didn't talk about anything that you wanted to kind of share with listeners about the piece or anything else you have going on? Um, I don't think so. I will say the piece itself, um, devolved the response to it. (laughs) Mm, mm, mm -hmm. I wondered whether to ask about that. I, yeah. Yeah. Well, it's funny. It's like not surprising to me. Um, what is a little bit funny is somehow, even though this has been almost exclusively my beat for like several years now, I have managed to stay off the radar of a lot of the like anti-trans groups for some reason. Mm -hmm. They like don't know my work and like who I am. I'd say that's probably because I'm not a trans woman. Um, Mm -hmm. But this seems to be the piece that maybe finally put me on (laughs) that radar. radar. Um, The response was like, I mean, I'm probably still getting mean comments and it's been you know a while um and so I think I would say to like anyone who isn't paying as much attention to these discourses or seeing what the conversation looks like to actually go look at the comment section on that piece or like look at the twitter discussion around it because what it shows you is the level of vitriol and hatred and um how basically impossible it is to come at this in like a good faith attempt at writing a piece um, 
and just how there really is just no time for <laughs> any well-reasoned arguments. They're gonna, mm-hmm. they, they just want to pick apart anything that you have to say. And it's like, it shouldn't be shocking, but it's like, you know, you bring up a point about human rights and people will be like, oh, what, the right to like play sports is a human right? And I'm like, literally the Olympics says it is. Like mm-hmm. the mm-hmm. Olympics says sport <laughs> is a human right. Like, and how willing people are to just say really horrific things in order to harm trans people. Um, I think it's really important, particularly for cis people, to see how ugly the political climate is right now um, for trans people in this country and how much it requires people who are not directly impacted to talk about this and speak up about it and like do something about it because we're like literally like we're talking about sports right here but it's not far you know to see how what we're actually talking about is like people's right to exist and and their lives so yeah yeah definitely absolutely yeah, so 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 join me. Speak up, please. <laughs> um, Frankie, thank you so much. This was, I mean, a, 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 an intellectually very generative conversation. I learned so much, as I always do from your work, about a really like sad and horrific topic. But thank you so much for your time and again for writing this piece. It just, I, I, I hope that it really taught people, as it's taught me a lot, and I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Mm-hmm.